sunrise This is the last day that I'll ever see Out in the courtyard they're ready for me But I go to my Lord with no fear Cause I did what I did for Maria sun going down all the windows were barred there was no one around for they knew that i'd come with my hand on my gun and revenge in my heart for maria my dearest departed maria that's tony christie i did what i did for maria I think it was number one in England in 1971. It's an extraordinarily, um, I guess, dumb song with a little bit of lovely religiosity and a tremendous amount of vengefulness that actually makes sense. And when you listen to it, I Did What I Did for Maria by Tony Christie, I defy you not to get a little emotional. It's something about the... The poor man who's revenging his beloved wife's murder, it's something about it. It touches a very uh, a real nerve. So I just put that on because I thought I'd test you. Go back and listen to it. I did what I did for Maria. And see if you, uh, amidst the conflictedness of your thoughts, have a kind of... Um, emotional, little tiny emotional reaction of empathy and love. Anyway, um, this is a podcast number 283 entitled Achilles Heel, and it has nothing to do with Tony Christie. It has actually to do with um, a uh, kind of observation in the history of the church, let alone in the history of the human person, that came very strongly to me recently in preparation for a class I'm teaching at St. Matthew's. Episcopal Church in Bedford, New York, for four Sundays in October, uh, talking about ostensibly the Protestant face of Anglicanism, and in particular the the history of the Church of England and the Episcopal Church in light of the gospel, not in light of itself, but in light of the gospel emphasis, which has come and gone and come and gone like a wave, as it does in many, many situations and contexts, but it certainly has in the Episcopal Church. And... um, I've been continuing to come up against the question, why did it? Why did the gospel message, that great message that we, uh, that we find so apt and so profoundly ministering to our greatest and most um, thunderous affirmations for love and hope, why does that message disappear for years and even decades and then it will come back? I'm just talking about one context, the Reformation tradition within the Church of England or the Church of England since the 1520s and our Episcopal Church now in the year 2019. What is it that uh, causes a kind of um, ebb and flow to the gospel message? And I have a few thoughts about it. And the thoughts were actually... um, were uh, further catalyzed by the most astounding astonishing experience that Mary had and I last Friday night as we were able to get right into the middle of a concert by the group Journey, the famous 1980s mega star group Journey. And thanks to our wonderful and sympathetic friend and colleague, in a way I would say, and certainly pastor Paula White, 
came, she got us tickets both for the meet and greet, the backstage, and for the whole concert, very much up close. And uh, we you know, took the um, the um, uh, sort of long Route 95, um, like a Stau auf Deutsch, uh, traffic. Like it's like the LIE all the way from Greenwich up to um, Uncasville, Connecticut, which is uh, where the Mohegan Sun Casino Arena is. And there we went and we had this remarkable experience. But one of the things that struck me, and I've always loved Journey, but my, my Journey years were raising children. They weren't the adolescent and teenage and even childhood years where music has a, a power over you that is lifelong and enduring and impossible to shake, becomes part of you. It was a little bit distanced by the fact that Journey was big when our own children were 10, 11, 12, and even younger and older. And uh, so the songs by Journey, I'm a little more uh, detached, although I've always loved them. And as I looked over the um, the huge crowd, thousands and thousands of casino goers and concert goers who were with us listening to Journey, and I saw once again the extraordinarily, the dramatic attachment that people, most of these people were in there late 30s and early 40s, I'm in my late 60s, uh, they were so attached to the music because the music had obviously resonated with them when they were in that most impressionable early uh, pre- and post-adolescent period where music is sort of everything, especially for guys. It has its own way of relating to girls, but guys, it is truly the bottom line. And the whole psychosexual uh, affinity of the anthemic songs uh, of Journey, the lyrics of which are extremely simple and in some ways conflicted. And yet uh, the combination of Neil Schoen's guitar and Jonathan Cain's um, sort of steady keyboards and Russ Valori on the bass and this uh, amazing um, substitute uh, singer Arnel Pineda for Steve Perry, who's, who Pineda is very good, and the same old uh, wonderful drummer and the power of the songs because they're perfectly produced they're I mean they're perfectly conveyed and through the live performers the power of the songs like stone in love and uh, obviously um the great one don't stop believing and many others that are there in the program set and we were all caught up in this extraordinary romantic vision of youth and hope and even though i would say the uh, congregation the, the crowd which was vast was uh, overwhelmingly you know i i mean you just have to say what's the word non ivy league and yet it was utterly heartland heartland um a fair number of skanks that has to be said but i i, I you just have to say it an awful lot of uh, a certain element, but were people trying to be or looking like it was nevertheless fully engaged with the the core of human nature's desire for connection. I mean, a lot of drunk people, a lot of um, very very laissez-faire feeling in the uh, arena, which I found very refreshing. There wasn't a million trillion. Um, do's and don'ts, um, but the overall feeling of uh, camaraderie and oneness in this sort of very sexualized and yet safe, lovely 
um, romanticized connection of youth was overwhelming. A lot of guys who've drunk a lot of beer and a lot of girls who were trying to look like maybe they looked 20 years ago and, you know, with varying levels of, as it were, success. And yet there it was. And I thought to myself, you know, this is the human condition. Everybody, they, these people, I'm no different from any one of these people and they are no different from me. Yes, uh, you know, a few of them, I mean, there's not, you get the feeling there's not all that much reflection going on, but 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 the, the, the deepest uh, looks, I mean, the, the deepest uh, hungers, the deepest uh, soul ties are all in process of being formed, being broken, being formed again, being hungered for, being mourned, being gripped, being sadly resigned from, uh, you want to use any preposition you can, and the universality of the human condition. And here we come to the next thing, because within sort of hours of that um, fabulous close-up um, tranche of uh, of American connection with love and the power of love and the glory of love and the splendor of love and the sheer upness of love. We're uh, in Bedford, and I'm speaking about the ebb and flow of the gospel in um, the uh, history of uh, the Church of England. Moving in next week, this coming week, the 13th, I'll be talking about in the Episcopal Church, where there was a very strong gospel movement starting around 1812-1816 with a revival in Shiraw, South Carolina, and a revival in Bristol, um, uh, Rhode Island, and uh, several, many, but major revivals in uh, Virginia and uh, other places, all of which um, created a kind of positive evangelical um, renewal in these old and rather superannuated, because of the American Revolution, uh, colonial churches, all of a sudden something important and marvelous happened, even in New York City, even. So, um, and in St. Matthew's Bedford, by extension. So the question really um, comes, what uh, what causes it? Well, obviously the Holy Spirit, but I uh, and I really do believe that. Uh, gosh, if I know Paula, that's the only possible answer. But let me say something a little bit more about it that relates to journey and the fact that you probably couldn't listen to the whole song I did what I did for Maria without being a little bit teary because there's something about love in there that's profound. Well, the... Um, the the failure of, of the church historically to really uh, ab- to 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 find um, power and resurgence and fresh confidence and hope in the gospel almost always has to do with a a uh, a uh, diminished uh, understanding of the human problem. This is my point. The Achilles heel of the Christian church and the Christian movement, you, you see it all over the place, is when human nature is misobserved or inaccurately portrayed, uh, when people are not understood as they actually are, and because they are not seen and understood and observed and uh, made allowances for and empathized with as they actually are, the power of God's compassion for us in our need and our sin and our deep self-sabotage, let alone our circumstances of overwhelming defeat and blockedness and impasse, the um, the power of what God um, has done in Jesus Christ and in the his coming and in his proclamation of a of a way of, uh, of a God that uh, looks upon the human race with infinite and enduring and persistent compassion, Allah 70 times 7, that picture and that, that experience of God is uh, unavailable 
when the human condition is not properly, what's the word they used to say, parsed? I don't like the word, actually, but that's the word I hear. When the human condition is not adequately understood, the real Achilles heel of the Christian churches throughout all of the uh, Christian era has been when uh, the view of human nature uh, becomes elevated, i.e., when the Greeks view that if you told someone what to do, they would do it because people always do that which is rationally, obviously, uh, in their best interest to do. So if you simply advise someone, as it were, what to do, they will should uh, then do it. And uh, that comes into complete um, confrontation with St. Paul's understanding that the good that I would do is I don't. And the things that I really don't want to do, the bad things are the things that I do. And that is the profundity and the um, What's happened in the church, it happened under the Church of Rome, is a view of human nature as less than uh, inherently and uh, deeply to the very root distorted by sin and self-will and compulsive uh, desires to get its own way, um, which are unavoidable and uncontrollable and persistent. This um, understanding of human nature as being in kind of a bind, it was originally called uh, original sin, this... uh, this um, understanding, which is really simply empirical, and the empirical understanding of the way people are, it's George Eliot's eyes looking at the human condition, or better, Charles Dickens's, because he sees it as it is, but he has compassion for us, and that makes his works really more profoundly Christian than the more ultimately dark shadows of George Eliot in most of her works, but not all. You find, therefore, um, this uh, in the Church of Rome's view of human nature, which was dependent, as we all know, and it really was dependent on Aristotle, which is a false view of human nature. It's an inaccurate, let's call it an inaccurate, a shallow, or a shallow or relatively superficial view of human nature. And this uh, happens again and again, and I am drawn in particular to to the... uh, to, to the hinge figure in American Episcopal Church history, Phillips Brooks, who really is the hinge. He is the hinge between the evolution, rapid evolution of evangelical um, schools of thought within the Episcopal Church in America to, quote, liberal, that's theologically liberal, not politically liberal, theologically liberal views of the human condition. And the pivot point is um, 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 Phillips Brooks, who rejects his, quote, Calvinist, end of quote, that's the word that's always used, but he, I'm not sure he would have used the word. I think he would have used the evangelical view of the human condition was just too dark. He was a sunny sort of character himself, a wonderful thing, but I think he would have said that the darker view of human nature is what I am... Uh, I'm wrestling with, uh, and I don't really like it, I don't really accept it, and I'm not, not going to accept it. And of course, as soon as you say that, then your ministry is a ministry of invocation and, and uh, actually um, really uh, an, uh, an attempt to get people to do that those beautiful things and unselfish things which the Bible calls us to and Christ does. And uh, you then lose all sense of, uh, of uh, understanding of the boundness of the will, which was a great insight on Luther's part. It's simply the case. If you just read D.H. Lawrence, as I said the other day, you, um, you lose. You, you lose something vital. And uh, the turning point in the Episcopal Church's history was, um, was, uh, was um, Phillips Brooks's real uh, walking away from the traditional understanding of human nature to a more optimistic uh, view, which uh, then caused his gospel to become beautiful and lovely, but nowhere near as, um, 
you might say, downreaching to the very depths of human pain, as Sam Shoemaker's was, who was also an evangelical Episcopal priest, but a kind of anomaly when he came along in the 20s and after that. Um, then you have, after the 1870s, 80s, 90s, with Phillips Brooks's School of Thought, you have, you have a um, you have um, a, a new theology, but it's in the same old forms. They, they didn't really change the prayer book. The prayer book of 1892 was not substantially changed, nor was 1928 substantially changed. So the old Episcopal prayer book, with its strong emphasis on original sin, the biblical uh, St. Paul emphasis, the Cranmerian emphasis on the bent reed to which God must bow and, I should say, extend himself, this uh, view of human nature, which is intrinsic in the 39 Articles, obviously, which remained in the prayer book and the prayer of humble access and the traditional prayer of confession, also in the traditional absolution and the um, in the uh, invitation to communion from the Tudor period, all of which stayed in the 28th book. The, uh, the power of the gospel was rather missing from the school of thought that the Episcopal Church, especially in its understanding of human nature, had adopted pretty much across the board, with exceptions, and now, um, but the form remained, so you could still, you could have a deeper understanding of life and still um, and still uh, worship in an Episcopal church with depth because the prayer book was so closely tied in with the New Testament understanding of man and the New Testament understanding of God's grace to women and men that um, you could still kind of hear it Sunday after Sunday. There was still the prospectus for hearing and being uh, getting something. Remember the old catechism. Now then, however, you might have had the form of, of godliness in the prayer book, but really not the power thereof, because the power thereof had sort of uh, drift away, what's the song, drift away, um, and uh, the prayer book was in sort of, um, you sort of, everybody sort of grinned and bared it about the prayer book, but people in the 50s and 60s sort of were very, had the Phillips Brooks view carried even further, and then, uh, but then, so in 1979, uh, some people, mostly at Sewanee, but not entirely, finally decided, look, we have to have our theology in keeping with our prayer book, so let's change the prayer book. Let's, the prayer book needs to catch up with the whole understanding of human nature that the, um, that the Phillips Brooks and his followers had embraced pretty much powerfully. And so then in 1979 comes a book that is no longer, they've changed the form. The doctrine of man is, is radically altered, uh, implicitly and explicitly altered throughout the prayer book. The 39 articles become historical documents rather than the 39 articles of religion. The um, ability to omit the confession is, if confession becomes optional in many, many services and communion. The morning prayer service, which is quite bleak in, and yet wonderful, was made secondary and third tertiary, and the prayer of humble access was even, even, even voluntary. It's, it's completely, it was, even that was slightly, was altered significantly. So you have a a change now of the form of religion, i.e. the 1979 prayer book, which already the power, the form and the power, to quote Second Timothy, were now um, both sort of alienated from the institution. And that's where we are. And it could be changed easily. The, the power always comes and goes with God's work in people's lives. I'm not at all hopeless about the church, even the Episcopal church. I am a little bit skeptical when the 
formalities of it, the canon law or the general convention activities or the, the formal prayer book has been altered beyond the New Testament's brilliant um, diagnosis. That, that worries me, but um, it's still very powerful possibility of, of, of making a change in individual situations all over the place. So I have hope. But nevertheless, nevertheless, the Achilles heel was and is the doctrine of human nature. And you know that in yourself. If you misdiagnose your problem, or your besetting sin or your temperamental defect or your uh, the stone which the builders rejected, which you constantly, you know, I have mine, you have yours, a temperamental habituated faults. If you aren't able to be honest and repentant and contrite about those things, God's extraordinarily accurate, totally to be counted on, totally individual type, Stacy, you too, mercy, uh, mockingbird's mercy, the God of mockingbird, the God of the New Testament, the God of the greatest and deepest thinkers and the inspired Holy Spirit of God coming into our brokenness. Then, um, if you misdiagnose the pit, uh, the hole, the nail uh, place, the scar, it, it, it won't the great explosion of human transformation and hope and new being cannot happen. So that's the Achilles heel. That's what I wanted to say. And so I think we'll end with um, a song that's directly relevant. And you, um, you tell me how relevant it is. We love the Guess Who, don't we? Love you all. Love you all. 